Good morning, church. Thank you again for joining us online. I'm going to ask today, if you have one accessible, that you grab a copy of a Bible and have that ready with you. Now, preferably the physical variety, not the online app on your smartphone or on your tablet. But if you have one around, actually grab a Bible. We love our Bibles, don't we? I mean, we we like to hold them. We like the feel of them, that that freshly tanned cow grain leather, those those gilded golden pages. We, we love to display them, but we love them most because of what's inside of them. Those little nuggets of wisdom, we flip through and we look for them and there they are. You know, when God, when God closes a door, he opens a window. That one's in there somewhere, right? The, the one that we, we love to use with our kids. Kids, remember what the good book says. Cleanliness is next to godliness. And we try and cite chapter and verse. What was that chapter and that verse? Well, it's in there, isn't it? I mean, it must be. It's a mystery. But ah, God works in mysterious ways. One of the promises from Scripture, right? I mean, surely it must be in there. If it's not, it's my own feeble brain, or maybe it's the work of the evil one confounding my mind. But no matter what man intended for evil, God meant for good. That's that's got to be in there, right? I mean, isn't all of that in the Bible? Well. Maybe my dog-eared Bible, I don't know it backwards to forwards, but a Bible falling apart normally belongs to someone whose life is together. Surely a truth from Scripture, right? Well, you know, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. One of the great verses from the Bible, right? Hmm. People's awareness of, or their memory of what the Bible actually says is really not headed in the right direction these days. If you ask the average person, for example, what was the forbidden fruit in the story of Genesis at the beginning of the Bible? What do you think they would say? They would say an apple, an apple, right? Only the Bible doesn't say that, does it? It just says forbidden fruit. Ask people how many wise men there were, and they'll an- they'll answer instantly three. I know it because they're right there on my mantle every Christmas. They're there on the, on the front lawn of the church in the creche. Three wise men. Only the Bible doesn't say that, does it? It does talk about three gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh, and, and maybe if we assumed one gift per person, that would leave us with three, but we don't know. The Gallup Institute ran a study a number of years ago about basic biblical literacy. And what they found was, well, it was kind of humorous. A whole bunch of people thought that the epistles were the wives of the apostles. I guess it makes sense, right? Some thought that Jesus' most famous talk was called the Sermon on the Mount because he gave it while he was riding horseback. Some people thought that that Noah was married to Joan of Arc. Makes sense. Well, today we are starting a series that will take us halfway through the summer months. And we've titled it, I Didn't Say That. And what we're going to do is look at a series of these thoughts or sayings that, that are often attributed to God or to God's word, but in fact aren't rooted either in God or in the Bible. Now, why do that? 
I mean, hopefully it's a little bit entertaining for the summer, but, but primarily for this reason. It's often because of distorted understandings of who God is, of what he does, of what his character is like. Those distorted understandings become a real barrier in our attempt to, to build relationship and trust with him. Some examples. You know that place in the Bible where it says, God will never give you more than you can handle? Only it's not in the Bible. But people think it is, and so they begin to believe that being a Christian means that your life will always be manageable. And they think if their life is not manageable, there is something wrong with their identity as a follower of Jesus. Only the Bible, it never says that. Life often gives people more than they can handle. That's the reason we need God, not evidence of the absence of God. A lot of people say that the Bible is the source of this idea that money is the root of all evil. So they carry this understanding that what well, to be a Christian means you are against money, or having money is somehow bad, or, or being gifted with the ability to generate wealth is a bad thing. But that's not actually what the Bible says about money. So through this series, what we'd like to do is take the opportunity to get to know God a little bit better and in fresh ways by looking at the things that that he didn't actually say that we tend to apply to him. And we, we do that hoping that our faith will get stronger and our love for him will grow deeper and we'll begin to obey him more naturally and, and maybe more joyfully. And then halfway through the summer, we're going to switch gears and we're going to look at some of the things that God actually did say that will absolutely surprise you. Some of the things that, that maybe are harder to understand, but equally important. So we start with, I didn't say that. And then we transition to, yeah, I really did say that. But the statement I want to look at with you this weekend, the one that we're going to kick things off with, is probably the one erroneous or misattributed quote given to God that is best known and and maybe the most harmful. Here it is. You've heard this before. God helps those who help themselves. Now, it turns out that's a very old saying. Now, it's an old saying, but it's not a biblical saying. The saying actually goes back to one of Aesop's fables. A man's driving a wagon, it gets stuck in the mud, and so he drops down to his knees in the middle of the mud and begins to pray to the gods to unstuck it. And eventually Hercules shows up to address him, tells him to get off his knees, put his shoulder to the wheel, and fix his wagon. And Aesop says the moral of the story is the gods help those who help themselves. So again, an old saying, but not a biblical saying. So what's true about it? Because there are some things that are true. I mean, certainly God doesn't call us just to be passive in life. God's given us each a mind and and a body and a will, and he wants us to take initiative and, and take responsibility. He's given us freedom. Those are good things. Faith in God doesn't mean I get a free pass from having to study for tests or avoiding exercise in order to be healthy, or, or, or not showing up for work on time, or with a good attitude. No. God generally will not do for you what he enables you to do for yourself. That's true. 
God will generally not do for you what he enables you to do. But, and this is an enormous pause here, but our biggest problems in life are largely those areas where we cannot help ourselves. And because of sayings like this and because of our attitudes about resilience and self-sufficiency and independence, we have this strange resistance to asking for help when we need it the most. Asking for help, it offends my pride. It offends my sense of competence. And so I, I absolutely I don't want to do it. A great danger, and I think many of us have been there, if not all of us, is that if we don't get help in time, what begins as a problem quickly evolves into a crisis. So what started out as going over budget from time to time ends up in crippling debt and shame. Or what started out as a pattern of unresolved conflicts in marriage ends up in divorce court. What started out as a bad habit becomes an addiction, a problem with flirtation, it it turns into an affair, or a problem with procrastination eventually turns into unemployment because we didn't ask for help. I mean, here's the truth about me. Maybe you maybe you resonate with it. But the truth about me is this. I, I need help. I need it more than I'm ever willing to admit it. It's a deep truth. Now let me tell you a little secret about you. You need help. You need it more than you're willing to admit it. It's true of everyone. In fact, why don't you do this? Say to somebody who is around you in the room, just look at them face to face and say, you know what? You really need help. We say it sarcastically, but there's truth in it. And amazingly enough, from a human perspective, the whole story of the people of God, the great adventure of God with his people that's recorded in the Bible from cover to cover, it really begins with a single word, with the word help. Let me show you an example of one of the places where that word comes most fully and forcefully into play. We're told that that the Israelites, the people of God, when they were living in slavery in Egypt, really at the bottom, just hanging off the, the lowest rung on the ladder. It says this in Exodus 2. You can flip to it in your Bibles. In Exodus 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 23. It says, The Israelites groaned in their slavery, and they cried out, and it was a cry for help, it says. And their cry for help went up because their slavery was intense. The cry went up to God, and God looked out on the Israelites, and he heard their cry. And God didn't say, hey, why don't you get organized? Hey, show some initiative. Hey, just put your shoulder to the wagon. I only help people that help themselves. No, God just helped. And what help it was. As you glance through scripture, you might want to ask yourself this question. Who is it that God helps? And one of the answers that comes into clear focus is that what God asks, or God answers the cries for help to those who actually cry out for help. God helps those who are needy. God helps those who are weak. God helps those who are scared. 
God helps those who feel like they're in just way over their heads. God helps those who feel like they can't help themselves. Now, to be clear, as you leaf through Scripture, you'll also find that God sometimes helps those who don't ask for help. God just loves to help so much that sometimes he just shows up and help is given for no reason at all. Jesus said that one of the most significant characteristics of our Heavenly Father is that he makes the sun shine on both the good and the bad alike, that he sends rain to fall on the just and the unjust. One of the favorite words to describe God in the Bible is help, our helper. O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. And by the way, that, that's not in the Bible, but it's rooted in the Bible. It comes from, from Psalm 90. So let's start by saying this, that mostly, I mean, mostly being the kind of person that God will help means the kind of person who's willing to open their lives up and receive the help of God. Ask for it and receive it. And that means being someone who is willing to pray. Someone who's actually devoted to prayer. God helps those who pray because they're looking for help. They're asking for it. They're craving it. And they're willing to accept it. What we're really called to in the Bible, rather than help or self-help, God helps those who help themselves, is prayer. A life of prayer. A heart of prayer. An attitude of prayer that, that somehow permeates every facet of our lives. Now, I don't know where you are on the whole prayer deal. Maybe you've been disappointed by prayer. That certainly is true of many people. You cried out to God about something that really mattered to you, and you feel like the cry fell on deaf ears. No help came. A lot of people put prayer in, in the category of one of the things I know I ought to do a lot more of, but I don't do enough of, and, and they just feel guilty about it. And so they kind of avoid it, and it makes the whole problem worse. Maybe you're, maybe you're kind of confused about prayer. Uh, you hear other people tell these amazing stories about receiving answers to prayer. It's like they've got God on speed dial. They feel this deep intimacy with God in prayer. But when you pray, uh, all you experience is your mind wandering to what's on the grocery list and when that new show is, de is uh, debuting on Netflix. And, and there's no focus. There's no intimacy to it. Maybe if you're really honest about it, and this is a good place to be honest, you're not sure you believe in the power of prayer at all. Maybe the idea of talking to this invisible, supernatural being doesn't make any sense. Or you think that even if God exists, how could prayer possibly affect any real change in the mind of God or in the affairs of the universe? God, if God is anything at all, is supreme, and nothing I do is going to affect what God does. Or maybe, just maybe for some of you, prayer is the great joy of your heart. Maybe you've known those secret moments of peace and intimacy with your Heavenly Father, and they've come in times of trouble, they've given you courage in situations that would normally produce terror, They've given you strength and control in times when, 
when otherwise you'd be afflicted and overwhelmed by anxiety. They've helped you avoid making terrible choices when you weren't sure exactly which way to turn. And you put all of those words into prayer and you express your gratitude for that relationship with God. Listen, whatever, whatever your deal is with prayer, I want to take you to a story in the Old Testament, in Exodus, in chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles, I promise you, this one is really in there. Exodus chapter 17. To a story where God is just beginning to teach his people about the power of prayer. So this is the passage we're going to look at today, Exodus 17. We're going to look at verses 8 through 13. A little bit of background. God has delivered his people from bondage, from slavery in Egypt. They first cried out to help, and, and God came to their rescue in a mighty way. In fact, this is the defining story of the Old Testament, the, the Exodus, the delivery of God's people. Now they find themselves outside of Egypt, wandering a little bit in the desert. They're on their way. They're on a journey to a new land, a good land, a land that God had said was waiting for them. And then we're told in Exodus that quite out of the blue, they were attacked by a group of people called the Amalekites. And suddenly their story, in fact, their whole existence, not just their calling as a nation, but as a people that were blessed in order that they could be a blessing to the world, their, their whole mission, their reason for being, all of that is now in jeopardy. And they don't know why. And so Moses calls his number two man. He calls, he calls Joshua, and they're going to have a, a strategy session. You remember, Moses is the one man in all of Israel who'd been raised in the royal courts of Pharaoh, which would have meant that he would have had military training. He might be the one man in the entire encampment who, had been, who would have been schooled in military strategy. So Joshua is waiting for the rollout of some great battle plan. But we're not told anything like that. Instead, here's what Moses says to Joshua, and this is in verse 9. He says, Choose some of our men and go on out and fight the Amalekites. And here's the rest of the strategy. Tomorrow, I'm going to stand up on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. That's it. You fight, I'll watch. And maybe, I don't know, we're not told what Joshua thinks of the plan, but if I were Joshua and I were wandering into a strategy session and that's what I got, well, I'm probably leaving thinking I wish there were more strategy in the session. I might have expected that our great leader Moses at least would be down there with us in the middle of the fight, inspiring his people. But he has another plan. And so the plan is executed. And the morning dawns and Moses climbs up the hill and he goes up there with his brother and another man named, do you see it in there? His name is Hur, H-U-R. Hur was the son of a leader named Caleb. It's thought that his name meant liberty, freedom, kind of a great name. A name really relevant to the story of a group of liberated slaves. But I have to admit, when I, when I first came across this passage and that name, it kind of sounded like something out of... I don't know, one of those Abbott and Costello who's on first routines. Kind of like this, Aaron, get her to come with me. You want her? I thought you wanted him. 
I do want him. Who is him? I told you. Her. No, no, anyway, I digress. Moses, Moses needs Aaron and her for an important reason, and it's about to become clear. He goes up to the top of the hill. He raises his arms towards heaven, towards God. It's quite amazing. The text doesn't say anything about what he prayed. In fact, it doesn't have a word about prayer in it. Remember, there are no books about prayer that are yet written. In those days, even Genesis, Exodus, the early books of the Bible hadn't been written. Maybe Moses, like a lot of people, felt reluctant to pray out loud. One of the descriptions of Moses that's given early on in the story is that he was slow of speech. He was slow of tongue. Maybe maybe words didn't come easily out of him. Maybe, like some of us, he felt awkward or silly or useless when it came to speaking in public. And all those men are down there underneath him, and they're in battle. He thinks he ought to come up with impressive words, but that's not his deal. He's not a speech maker. Fortunately, prayer isn't about speech making. It's about the heart. And prayer is fundamentally about the one that we pray to, not the words that we pray with. What we pray matters far less than the one that we pray to. Remember that when you're struggling for the right words, that what we pray matters far less than the one that we pray to. In fact, he expresses all of his prayer, not in words, but in a single gesture as he opens his arms and raises them towards the heavens as if to say, help. God, God, help. Alice Willard used to say that if you have the courage to voice it, maybe the most authentic of all prayers is simply this. God, help, help, help. And then the most amazing thing happened. Help came. Power came. Power from God. Power for the battle taking place on earth. Like an electric current flowing through Moses and through him and beyond him and into the lives of the men who fought down in the field. And and suddenly they can't be stopped. They're not being defeated. It's a bunch of ex-slaves and they're prevailing. and, And it's amazing. But as the day wears on in the heat of the noonday sun, Moses begins to tire. And as he tires... He lets his arms fall. As they come down, something happens to the spirit of the soldiers on the field, and they begin to lose the battle. And Moses raises his arms back up again, and as he raises them, they begin to to prevail. The tide turns again. And then it dawns on Moses and on Aaron and on her and maybe on Joshua that when Moses reaches for the heavens asking for help, the power is released. That the battle is no longer just a battle of flesh and blood. That there's another power. There's, there's another force. There's another kingdom at work. There's this unseen reality also in battle. And I think really what's going on here is that in the early pages of the scriptures, God is giving people a physical picture of a deep spiritual reality, that we are not made to live strictly by our own power, that we live in dependence on God, 
And that over time, as what's depicted there physically becomes enshrined in the language of prayer, it gets deepened and it gets elaborated. Then we see it elaborated and revealed supremely through Jesus. Just kind of like God's great prayer offering to his people. If prayer is communication from God to us and receiving our communication back to him, then isn't that who Jesus was? God come to us to plead on our behalf before God. An alcoholic, a man named Bill W., lived his life in stubborn pride year after year after year. His battle was a battle with the bottle, and the enemy was killing him. And finally he hits the bottom, and he realizes his life is null and void, and he is hopeless. And then finally in desperation, what does he do? He lifts his hands toward the heavens, and he utters a single word. Help. Help. And the battle for sobriety that he knows he could never win alone begins to turn. And as long as he and millions of others who follow him live one day at a time with their hands lifted up, saying, help me, God, I can't do this on my own. My life has become unmanageable. I have an enemy I'll never beat. But God, you can help me overcome. Through that surrender, life becomes manageable. And surrender turns to victory. Gang, this is, this is the invitation for us today. In your work and in your home, in your relationships, in your addiction, in your confusion, in that diagnosis or in that loss or fear, there is a battle going on. You know it. In fact, I wager that everybody that you see today is in the midst of some kind of a battle. We are not meant to do battle alone. Now, what is it that will keep me from asking for help? Normally, it's just pride and, and self-sufficiency. And Karina and I got married one of us was way more emotionally immature and relationally challenged than the other, and probably than the other one even knew. And worse, this person was too proud and stubborn to admit that they needed help, and worse, that person was me. The first step toward healing took place many, many years later, and it was a humbling one where where I have to admit that I need help, that I, I can't do this thing on my own. The intimacy thing, the coping thing, the marriage thing, this, this thing called love. Uh, left on my own, I withhold and I withdraw, and, and sometimes it feels like I just I can't help it. And so I went to see a human counselor, and I went to the divine counselor. By the way, God often chooses human means to give divine help. So don't underestimate that. I had to learn to lift up my hands and ask for help. I'm still learning it. There are, I think, two great truths 
really to get embedded in our minds. And when they're embedded there, they can help us more habitually to raise our hands, to overcome pride and ego and ask for help. I associate them with two arms going up, two great truths. The first great truth is this. Our God is able. How able is God? According to Scripture, he is exceedingly able. He's able to speak the universe into being, to say, let there be light, and there was light. He's able to bring the plagues that will change the heart of a pharaoh, and when the Red Sea is standing in the way of God's people, he can part its waters. When manna is needed to feed its people, God can bring it. When a storm threatens the lives of his disciples, God can still it. He's able to rescue Daniel from a lion's den and three young men from a fiery furnace. He can take, he can take five loaves and two fish and feed a crowd of thousands. He's able to make a priest silent and a donkey speak. He can make the lame walk and the blind see, and he can make a leper clean, and he can make a dead man live. Our God is able. In fact, if we're going to use the word God at all, we simply have to understand that that is insufficient language. There is no way to conceive of a being like God. No way that we can wrap it up in a name. This is what Paul says, Ephesians 3, verse 20. He said, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. You see how Paul just loads up that verse with one great thought after another. God is able to do what we ask, but not just that. He's able to do all that we ask, but not just that. He's able to do more than all that we ask, and not just a little bit more. He's able to do abundantly more than all that we ask, and not just that. He's able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. How able is God? (laughs) Very able. Exceedingly able. His arm hasn't lost any of its strength. He never wearies. The God who watches over you never slumbers, never sleeps. He's not lost his capacity to, to speak, and upon speaking comes to be. God is able. And we trust that. We trust it enough that we turn to him knowing that he is able to receive anything we bring. God is able. Here's the other great truth. That God is willing. I mean, God could be very strong, but if God doesn't have a caring heart and a listening ear, I don't want to hold my hands up to heaven all day long. But God is willing. He's not just able. He's willing to hear and willing to notice. He's willing to love and willing to act. How willing? (laughs) Very willing. The writers of Scripture say he's willing enough to count the hairs on your head and keep every one of your tears in a bottle, willing to hear the groans of people and the blood that cries out from the ground from every single victim. He's willing to suffer like a lovesick father waiting for his prodigal child to return home and willing enough to become one of us. That's the doctrine of the incarnation. Remember from last week, doctrines are just the great truths about the way that that things are. Here's a great truth about the way God is. He's so willing 
that in Jesus, God becomes flesh. And part of what that means is that Jesus learns firsthand what it is to live with limits and to need help. Hard to imagine that, isn't it? That when God was a little boy, he would need to cry out to his mother, Mary, help me, mom. One of the first words that he probably learned in Aramaic was the same word that we all learned. Mommy, help. Help me get dressed. Help me get my food. I mean, how amazing is that, that that God humbles himself in Jesus? Here, the maker of the universe itself, asking for help to tie the laces of his sandals. If a parent lives long enough, they end up asking their children for help, don't they? Help me get dressed, help me eat my food. The same things that we asked of our parents long ago. We're born needing help and we die needing help. And in between, we can fool ourselves into thinking that we don't need help. But all it takes is a few years or a little health problem, a blood vessel that doesn't just work right, or an email from work saying the job is no longer ours. And we remember that word, help. In the end, in the final pages of Jesus' story, he couldn't even carry the cross by himself. A man named Simon from Cyrene had to help him. And the story of Jesus ends as it begins. With God who somehow knows what it means to be weak and small and needing help. That's our God. And yet he's willing. And he has such a generous heart. And he's not frustrated, and he's not impatient, he's not weak, and he's not disinterested. God is willing. Not just that, God is waiting. He's waiting right now. So let me ask you this as you watch from the quiet of your own home or your workplace, from the couch or the table, where is it that you need help most? What is it that you, as you lift your hands, that you need to offer up to heaven? God, give me strength to face this crisis. God, give me wisdom to know how to parent. God, give me peace in the midst of this storm. God, take away the, or give me the ability to overcome this anger and resentment and, and bitterness. God, take away my fear. It's just, it's killing me and I can't make it go away. God, give me your help so that I can cope at work. God, I need patience to be able to survive in the midst of this circumstance. God, I haven't known joy in a long time. And I sure would like to feel it again. God is able. And God is willing. And God helps people who can't help themselves. Now, maybe like Moses, you you might need help from somebody else. I mean, like Moses, your arms have grown tired. Maybe you've prayed and prayed and prayed, and and it's exhausting. There are times in my life when when I've felt so deeply burdened that, that I've had to say to another person, I don't even know how to pray anymore. I don't even know how to ask God for what's going on. Would you pray for me? Would you pray with me? And... Unfortunately, there have been those who said, yeah, I'll do that. 
they become like Aaron in my life. They're like her for me. And those are sacred moments, and we need those. There's this amazing picture, you know, in Exodus 17, of what the kingdom of God is like. Not just how God hears and God cares and God is able and God is willing and God can send power. Not just how there's a battle going on down here, but there's also a battle being waged where God is sending power, spiritual power into play. But there's also this image of those who are weary being supported under both arms by friends in Christ. Those who don't have the strength to hold themselves up anymore, but somehow in the midst of weakness and brokenness and neediness, other people come alongside them. There's a power there that is never found when our only goal in life is independence and self-sufficiency, when it's driven only by ego. And often that's the reality in which we live. But this is life in the kingdom. Life where you're free to say to somebody, would you be my Aaron? Would you be my her? Would you hold up my hands because I'm pretty tired right now? Would you support me in prayer because my heart is breaking and I just don't have the words anymore? Guess what I'm asking us is, in every venue where you're listening this morning, would you risk setting aside self-sufficiency just long enough? Stubbornness, resistance, what it is, just long enough to lift up your arms to heaven and also to widen them and grab hold of a couple of other people. And there'll be times when you're the one doing the lifting, and there'll be times when you're the one being lifted. We need that. And if you think that you haven't found that, let us help. It only takes a minute to type info at mcbc.org and write help. And we'll be there. I'm going to close our time today by praying this simple prayer to God. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to, to bow your heads and to close your eyes. We turn to God for what only God can give, remembering that God helps those who cannot help themselves. So let's pray together. God, we know that you are able. And praise God, we, we know that you are willing. What grace is this? That you incline your heart towards us. God, we also know that, that there is a stubborn streak in each of us. That we are resistant, that we don't like to admit that we can't do it on our own. So give us the courage to muster up the one cry, the one word, that in dependence and in submission places our lives in a current of grace that opens up a stream of, of heavenly power in our lives 
the likes of which can be found nowhere else in the world. To you we offer that single word, knowing that you are able, knowing that you are willing. To you, God, we cry out together. Help. Help us, Lord Jesus. Amen.